as we continue our journey together through the book of Hebrews. And today we're looking at chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. And before I read the passage, I kind of want to play catch-up on the context. Have you ever been watching a movie, and let's say you're 30 or 40 minutes into the movie. Someone comes in the room who hasn't seen the first 30 or 40 minutes, and they start asking you questions. Don't you love that? Aren't you just thrilled by that? They start asking you, well, why did he say that? Well, why did she do that? Where are they now? Where, where did, where, what happened before? And they're asking one after the other, and you're going, shh, shh, be quiet. Watch it later. Leave the room. Find something else to do. And so what I want to do today is sort of bring us up to speed together on where we've been in chapter 9 and where we're headed, and I think it's important that we do that. And so as we begin chapter 9, we're going to return to the argument of the author of Hebrews. And today we're going to look at verses 15 to 28. And yet while we're doing that, allow your eyes to sort of scan the first 14 verses of Hebrews chapter 9. And the essential theme of this chapter, and the book has been building up to this uh, climactic point, and that point is Jesus is a better priest uh, who is a better priest of a better covenant. And so I have racked my brain all week trying to think of ways in which to communicate to you, this to you in a practical way. And it's very difficult to do so because this is so steeped in Old Covenant, Old Testament ritual and uh, Old Testament knowledge and information. If you don't have that, it's easy for this to just zoom right over your head. Take that from a guy who took calculus in college that met four times a week for an hour and only went one day a week. You want to get lost fast? Do that in a calculus class. You have that sick feeling the third time you're in class going, I don't know what in the world we're doing. And so we need to play catch up, and so we're doing that. Now, a better priest of a better covenant, in verses 1 to 14, he talked a lot about the Old Testament tabernacle, the furnishings, the architecture, uh, the ritual, the sacrifice, the worship that took place under the Old Covenant. And the author of Hebrews argues that those things were not something to be done in perpetuity. They were something that was temporary, something that Christ himself fulfilled. They pointed to Christ, and he fulfilled them, and therefore something superior, something better has come than the Mosaic Covenant. And the author keeps calling this the first covenant in contrast to the new covenant. So he's contrasting the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant and saying Jesus is a better priest of a better uh, covenant because the worship and the ritual and the sacrifices of the old covenant pointed forward to Jesus and have now been fulfilled. Therefore, all of that in the old covenant was simply the shadow. The substance or reality has come in Jesus Christ. Now today, in verse 15, he's going to draw a conclusion from the argument he's been making so far, and then in the rest of the passage, he's going to elaborate on that conclusion. 
He says the main thing that he wants to say in this whole section in verse 15. But then in verses 16 all the way to verse 28, he elaborates on what he says. Now, along the way, this is what I want you to do as we go through uh, the rest of chapter 9. I want you to be on the lookout for a few things. After he says what he says in verse 15, in verses 16 through 18, he answers the question, why did Jesus have to die? Then if you look at verses 19 to 23, he's going to connect the dots by reminding us that the Old Testament, the main cleansing, the main agent of cleansing, and in all purification rituals of the Old Testament was what? Blood. A lot about blood. He's going to remind us how blood was used as the cleansing, the agent of cleansing and purification rituals in the Old Testament. And he summarizes that in that famous phrase, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so there's a lot of blood going on here. And then finally, in verses 24 to 28, he's going to point to the efficacy or the powerful intended result of Jesus' death. Jesus' shedding of his own blood as the ultimate reason why Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. I'm going to keep saying that, a better priest of a better covenant. Now, look out for verse 15 as the main statement and then there will be one more concluding statement in verse 28 and along the way we sort of have three points together now one more thing as we look to read this passage together and that is this many of our english translation uh, translations are going to translate a greek word in two ways there is the word covenant in this passage it's used five times the word is diatheke in the Greek, and it's used five times. And if you were consistent in your translation, you would translate it covenant, 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 covenant. But he doesn't do that here. In two places, or three places, he uses the term will or testament uh, or a combination of the two. And so when we read the text where you see the word will or the word testament, that is actually the word covenant. And if you were more accurately or literally translating this passage, and we'll explain it when we get there, that the word covenant, I mean the word witness, uh, will or testament should be covenant. And we'll preach it that way. Now, hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 15. Therefore, he is a, the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Um, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every 
commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood uh, not his own. For then he would have, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things about our Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us, and we pray in his name. Amen. Now, perhaps some of you like Papa John's pizza. I like Papa John's pizza because of Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning was the patron saint of the University of Tennessee football. And since he allowed his name to be associated with Papa John's pizza, I thought it's got to be a good thing because Peyton likes it. And so, <laughs> I know I've just lost a lot of you right now. <laughs> but you will know if you're a Papa John's pizza fan that one of the taglines in their advertisements are or is better ingredients what? Better pizza. And then you know how the rest of the little jingle goes, and I'm not going to do that here. This is not a product placement, by the way. What many of you may not know is that one of Papa John's major competitors sued them over the tagline. And they said, how is it, how in the world can you have the gall to say that you have better ingredients than we do? A tomato is a tomato. A pepperoni is a pepperoni. What do you mean you've got better ingredients than we do? Now, I'm not going to get into all that litigation that happened and give you my unprofessional opinion. Uh, I didn't stay in the Holiday Inn last night, so I'm not a lawyer. But understand the competitor was saying this to Papa John's. How can you possibly make the claim that you've got better ingredients, therefore you've got better pizza? Well, in this whole section of Hebrews... The author of Hebrews is asserting that Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. And his opponents at the church that the Hebrew author is addressing are saying, wait a minute, 
How in the world can you possibly say that Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant? And so the author says, well, let me tell you exactly why I'm saying Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. If you remember last week, he's already started on this argument. Let's take a look at verse 11, for instance. He begins in chapter 9, verse 11, by saying, The Old Testament priest ministered in a tabernacle, which was a big tent, and then later on in a temple made by human hands. But Jesus is a priest in a tabernacle uh, that is not made by human hands, but made by God himself. Therefore, he's a better priest. Look at verse 12. He goes on to argue that the priest of the Old Testament had to enter the holy place by the blood of animals. That is to say they had to make sacrifices for themselves and for their people from animals, but Jesus does not serve as a priest in that way at all. He enters the holy place by his own blood, his own blood. And there... Uh, he uh, offered his sacrifice, therefore he is a superior or better free priest. Verse 13 says that those sacrifices in the Old Testament were perfectly effective for ritual purification, that is, external. In other words, if a priest wanted to declare you ceremonially able to participate in the worship and life of the congregation, as long as you performed those rituals, you were good to go. But those rituals could not cleanse your conscience they couldn't deal with the guilt they couldn't put it finally away in fact it had to be repeated over and over and over again but Jesus's blood verse 14 tells us is able to cleanse the conscience and that is why when you get to verse 15 he says therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant in other words he is saying it is especially Jesus' death that shows why he is a better priest of a better covenant. His effective atoning death is the fundamental reason why he is a better priest of a better covenant. And he explains it in verse 15, and I want you to see three things about verse 15. First, he tells us, by Jesus' death, we receive an eternal inheritance. First of all, notice that so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The called are those who have been effectually called, that is, called by God's Spirit, regenerated. Those who have been chosen by God, God by His Spirit, calls them out, and they respond to that call and come to Him. And so he's saying the people who respond to the call, whom God has chosen, who the Spirit has made alive, are the ones who receive the eternal inheritance. Therefore, the first assertion is this. It is through Jesus' death that we receive the promise that God made for us all the way back in Genesis 3.15 and in Genesis 12 and in Jeremiah 33. It is through Jesus that we receive this promise, that we have an eternal inheritance. And what is that inheritance? It is everything the glory of Christ has himself. We will be partakers of his glory. We will share in his inheritance. And that's quite a thing, far more than the old covenant would ever give you. By Jesus' death, we are purchased back from what our transgressions deserve. 
Argument number two, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgression, that is law-breaking. Now, this is amazing. We could spend not only today, but weeks on that one phrase. He is asserting that Jesus' death redeemed. Now, redeemed is the language of the marketplace. It is the language of purchase. By Jesus' death, we are purchased back from what our transgressions deserve. I remember the first time I ever heard the word redeemed was uh, a, I filled up a stamp book, Quality Stamps. I know that dates me. Most of you have never heard of that, have you? But used to, you go to the grocery store, you buy groceries, and they give you a certain amount of stamps, and you had a little book, and for a kid like me, this was exciting. And then I would put the stamps on the page and fill up the book, and then they had, you could redeem your stamps and get something. And the most exciting day was when I took like 20 of them down and uh, to the grocery store. I think it was a big star grocery store. And sitting up on the highest shelf was the best-looking pirate ship you've ever seen. And I bought that thing with my books of stamps. I redeemed it. I purchased it. It became mine. And the scriptures tell us that Christ's death has redeemed us. He has bought us back unto himself. By Jesus' death, we are purchased back from what our transgressions justly deserve. The Old Testament sacrifices never worked that way. They made you ritually pure, but they did not purchase you back from what your transgressions deserved. And the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant because his death actually bought you back from what your sins deserve. You are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is his. You don't belong to yourself anymore if you're a Christian. You have been bought. You have been purchased. There's an old uh, apocryphal story about Abraham Lincoln buying a slave girl. He went to a slave market. He purchased her. She was about 13 years old. And after he made the purchase, he looked at the girl and he says, you can go. You're free. You can go wherever you want to go. And so Lincoln started leaving, and he felt someone behind him, and he turned around, and there was that slave girl walking with him. He said, don't you understand? I purchased you. You have freedom. You can go wherever you want to go. And the girl said, I want to go with you. And that is exactly what happens to us when we understand what I'm preaching this morning that we have been bought with a bloody price. We no longer belong to ourselves. We are his. And our life is to be lived in terms of bringing as much glory, the spotlight to the goodness, grace, and mercy of God. Thirdly, by Jesus' death, sins committed under the old covenant are forgiven. He's going to say something here amazing. He's going to say that Jesus' death actually reaches all the way back to the fall retroactively and reaches all the way to eternity future in its power to forgive sins. Let's talk about that. Here's what he says. A death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed where? Under the first covenant. Wait a second. Did you hear that? A death occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. Last week, after we had worked our way through Hebrews 9, 
I'm sure some of you thought, Do, did I really believe that sin was forgiven under the Old Covenant? And I do believe it was under the Old Covenant, but it was never because of the ritual sacrifices. People under the Old Covenant are same, the, saved the same way as people alive today. Just as they were saved by anticipating a future Messiah who would come and buy them back and take their transgressions and take them down into death and die. And as they trusted in the promise of that, they were, by grace, saved and forgiven. Just as you and I, in the future now, look back at the cross and we trust in the work Jesus has done for us and we are forgiven now and forever as a result of looking back. And so that's what he's saying. The death of Christ accomplished something the Old Covenant could never accomplish. If those sacrifices did not forgive sins, how were people forgiven in the day of the Old Covenant? And that's a good question to ask. And the author of Hebrews is arguing this. Jesus' death works in both directions. Only by the blood of Jesus Christ is anyone ever saved. And here's what he's saying to you. How are people forgiven under the Old Covenant? Only by the blood of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus' work forgives sins retroactively. His death, and I'm going to use a fancy word here. I learned this, Kevin, when I went to seminary 100 years ago. His death had effects that were proleptic. Proleptic. That is, it had effect back in time before he came into our space and time and history. And so the author of Hebrews is explaining how today to understand that Jesus is a better priest under a better covenant because all of those Levitical sacrifices were not effective for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' one death covered all sins of all believers of all ages even before he was incarnated into the world in space and time. And then he moves to what I think is in the bulletin point number two, the necessity of Jesus' death. He elaborates this point, and I want to elaborate that in the passage today. The first thing he argues is this. Why is it that Jesus had to die? In verses 16 through 18, he tells us, because Jesus was fulfilling the penalty that was due us because we had broken the covenant. In the Old Testament, when you make a covenant and you uh, enter into a covenant relationship, there was often a ritual attached to that. I want you to think of Genesis chapter 15. And it's a very strange ceremony that occurs in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, when Abraham asked God, Lord, how do I know that you are going to fulfill your promises to me? Do you remember what God said to Abraham? He said, take a heifer, take a goat, take a ram, take birds, kill them, divide the carcasses of the large beast, and lay them side by side. It's, it's almost as if an aisle is being made through which someone can walk. And so... He did that and put them side by side, and then he said, wait for me. Now, everybody who had ever read the Old Testament or heard the Old Testament would have known what's going on. Everybody from the time of Moses to the time of Jeremiah would have known, ah, God is about to do a covenant-making ceremony. It is interesting. Barith in Hebrew is the word covenant. Uh, Benai Barith is sons of the covenant, and what is it for the girls? 
Benaiah. You know? Huh? Yeah, it's Berith, but I can't think it's Benai or Benai. No, it's Benai and uh, the daughters. But sons of the covenant is Benai Berith. And to make a covenant means to cut a covenant. Huh? Bot, like a bot mitzvah. Yeah, there you go. I have Hebrew scholars on the first row. They move away. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Thank you. So that what I want to get across to you is to make a covenant always involve cutting. Cutting what? Cutting animals in half. And you know what happens? Abraham is not asked to walk that aisle between those cut-up carcasses, is he? So God, in a theophany, comes as a smoking oven and a torch and in a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance, probably a Christophany of Christ, he, in that image, walks between the cut-up animals. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that whoever walks between the animals is saying, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I fail to keep the covenant. If I fail to obey the sanctions of the covenant, the requirements of the covenant, because every covenant had sanctions that each party agreed to obey. But the only one who walked between these animals was not Abraham, because he's going to be a covenant breaker. But the theophanic presence of God Almighty walked between the animals. And what is that saying to us? That he took upon himself... The covenant-breaking curse because of our sin. Now, when the covenant was made, the animals were slaughtered. The animals were slaughtered was a symbol of what ought to happen to you if you were unfaithful in your part of the covenant. In other words, the slaughtered animals pictured the judgment we deserve for violating the covenant. And that is referred to here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 to 18. So look at it with me very closely. When a covenant is, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it for a covenant. Is valid only when men are dead, but is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now, I've just read the passage as it is written in the New American Standard Version. But you know that your passage reads differently. It has will, it has testament, it has other words. Now, translators are not dummies. By the way, I want you to have great confidence in your English translations. The people who worked on your English translation know more Greek and Hebrew than Kevin, Stephanie, me, and everybody else in this whole room combined. They spent their lives being Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars. And so we can have great confidence in our translations. And I say this not to do that, but they have to make decisions sometimes on how to translate words, and they vote on it. And they have a reason why they translate things the way they do, which is why so many modern translations switch from covenant to will or last will and testament in this passage. And it's some, for some very simple reasons. 
For one, we have a lot of commercial and legal documents from the first century A.D., the time and culture surrounding this passage, in which the Greek word diatheke, which means covenant, which is used in this passage, is used to refer to a last will and testament or to a commercial transaction or disposition. And so Greek scholars say the author of Hebrews is using a contemporary illustration from the idea of a last will or testament or disposition to illustrate Jesus' death as the mediator of the new covenant. And they especially argue that because if you'll look back at verse 15, what two ideas are used? Death and inheritance. Now, none of us have to be attorneys or play one on television to know that death and inheritance and last will and testament go pretty well together. But I don't think that's actually what the author is saying, and I think if you do, you miss something you do not want to miss. He is actually saying that Jesus is seen to be a better priest of a better covenant because he died precisely as the sacrifice for the broken covenant. Here's what you see. You understand that the idea of death and inheritance goes just as easily with the idea of a covenant as it does with the idea of a testament. But the difference between a covenant and a testament is what? Covenants are made between living people. Testaments or wills do not go into effect until someone dies. Now, we see covenants happen all the time in American culture. When we have a wedding ceremony, two young people who have no idea what they're getting into, stand up before the congregation and they make a covenant with one another to love, honor, and cherish as long as they both shall live. And then those of us who are 50 years of age and older say to ourselves, these kids have no idea <laughs> what they're getting into. But they go on and they make a covenant. They are two living people who make a covenant with one another. Testaments or wills don't go into effect until someone dies. But in the Old Testament, if you violated a covenant, what did you deserve? It was pictured in the death of the animal. So here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 18, the author of Hebrews is saying, let me explain to you why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die because you and I broke the covenant. That's why. We broke the covenant. He had to pay the penalty for that broken covenant. The only way God could justly forgive us is if Jesus paid that penalty. So all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were simply a picture pointing forward to the one who was really going to come and really going to offer the one and only true sacrifice on your behalf. It is quite stunning when you think about it. And if you remember in Genesis 15, Abraham again never walked between the pieces. Who walked between the pieces? The smoking oven, the flaming torch, the symbol of the presence of God. And when God went through those pieces symbolically, he was promising that he would give his son in the place of all who believe in him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's why Jesus had to die. You broke the covenant. He died in your place. That is why I don't think you can fully plumb the depths of the gospel without understanding covenant theology. I just think they go together. You have to see that we're all cursed. 
And you remember that passage in Galatians 3 where it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming what? A curse for us. For cursed is everyone who hangs where? On a tree. That was the sign of God's curse upon him. He cursed him so he could bless us with the obedience Christ rendered to the covenant. And that's great. Yeah, uh, that's worth having a party of. That's worth jumping up and down, high-fiving and everything else. Now, what about the crucial role of blood in the Old Covenant? The author of Hebrews in verses 19 through 23 explains blood is the cleansing agent in almost every part of the Old Covenant ritual. The blood played a crucial role in the mediation of the Old Covenant. And in verses 19 through 22, the author shows us the centrality of the blood in the Old Testament sacrificial ritual and shows its significance for the forgiveness of sins. When I was about nine years old, I had a paper route. And it was a local paper route. I only delivered papers once a week. The paper was called the Covington Leader. My younger brother works at that paper today even though he delivered that route with me. And so I went in a beauty shop. It was one of my usual stops. And I remember pulling the sliding glass door back. And I walk in and I give my paper, the paper to the woman. And she gives me a dime. And of course, I'm in a hurry. I'm trying to get through so I can go have fun. And so I turn around and make my way out. Somebody had closed the sliding glass door. And I went through it. And I broke it. And I remember stopping and just being in shock. I fell back. And I remember a woman jumped up out of the seat. She had a towel on her hair because she'd either had it dyed or washed it. I don't know. She jerks that towel off, grabs me, and starts to wrap it around my leg. And she starts wiping off my There's blood everywhere, everywhere. And I was numb. I couldn't feel anything. But there was blood everywhere. And, and other women were screaming. And somebody says, do you know who his parents are? Call them. You know, look at all this blood. And they were panicking. And that was making me feel panicked. Because they were screaming, and, you know, they weren't calm, they weren't poised. Except the woman that jerked that towel off. And she's going to put a tourniquet on me. So I remember her rubbing my le- wiping my leg off with the blood. And she said, well, that's a little nick, that's a little nick, that's a little nick. And then she right at my kneecap, she rolled my leg over, and it smiled at her. I had a 47-inch, 47 stitches cut on the inside of this knee. And I have never seen so much blood. And I thought, I'm going to (laughs) die. Sure, I'm glad I walked up front at the Baptist church because I'm going to die. Blood everywhere. And you know, when you see blood everywhere, what does that signal to you? Something serious is happening here. When you see blood like that, you turn your head away. Why? Because you don't want to look at it. Why? Because it's just eerie. Something is happening here. And don't you know that those blood-soaked priests in the tabernacle and temple who had it all over them, who were taking hyssop and sprinkling it everywhere and throwing it, it was just a bloody mess. Why? Because sin is a serious matter. And the wages of sin is what? And how do you die? You drain the blood out of people. 
And so blood, blood, blood everywhere under the old covenant, communicating the message that this is why we need a better priest of a better covenant. But the final efficacy and superiority of Jesus' death is what I want to talk about last. And I bet you're glad to hear that word. The final nature of it, the efficacy, how it is powerful and effective, and the superiority of his death. As we look at verses 24 to 28, we see this. Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. That is an important phrase. Important phrase. Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. The author of Hebrews is saying this. Jesus on Calvary in one time and in one place for all time faced and quenched the unmitigated wrath of God so that all who trust in him in all times both before he lived and after are forgiven their sins because he himself bore their penalty and it is stunning because there are at least two things he's trying to say to this congregation. First, turning from Jesus is folly. It is folly. The ritual of the Old Testament will never forgive one's sin. Secondly, you and I turning from Jesus and attempting to atone for our sins by doing anything is utter folly. You cannot in any way ever erase the stain of sin yourself. Only Jesus can do that. And so for those Jewish believers to whom this book was written, considered going back to Judaism, the author of Hebrews is saying, it won't do you any good to go back to the ritual religion of the Old Testament because you understand that none of that ritual has ever or will ever forgive even one part of your sin. All sin is forgiven in Jesus. To turn your back on him is to turn your back on the one and only place where sin can be forgiven. I remember singing a a gospel song called Victory in Jesus, and I'm not saying we need to sing it here. But (laughs) it's a little too southern for me. But there is a line in that gospel song that goes like this. He sought me and bought me by his redeeming blood. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here in chapter 9. Jesus sought us and he bought us with his redeeming blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. Now, second thing I want you to take home with you. God has been at work in this plan before the foundation of the world. There are some here this morning who treasure something more than Jesus or who do not think that Jesus' blood can avail for them. And the fact that Jesus is coming into this world and dying on our behalf means not only forgiveness for all who trusted in him afterwards, but all for all who trusted in him before he came indicates to us that God has been at work at this plan from the beginning of the foundation of the world. He is a lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. He loved us from the first of time, and he will love us to the last of time. I uh, read something this morning that I thought was very interesting by my friend Steve Brown. Steve Brown is a PCA pastor. He teaches preaching at Reformed Seminary. 
And he tells this story. He said, the other day, my assistant Kathy, and by the way, Pam and I have met Kathy. We have been in Kathy's house. So we know Kathy. Kathy told me that there was a man on the phone who urgently needed to talk to me. But Kathy was laughing. He says that he's a real big fan of yours, but he's lying because he calls you Dr. Green. So I picked the phone up, Steve Brown says, and said, hello, not Green, but Brown. With whom am I speaking, I asked. The man said he'd rather not tell me his name because he was going to tell me some really bad things he had done, and he was feeling too embarrassed and guilty to tell me his name, and so Steve Brown says, okay, I'll call you Sam. There followed a conversation between the two sinners who did not know each other's names. He confessed, and I responded with, so? <laughs> and he says, well, what do you mean, so? He said, you thought that you surprised God, and he had such high hopes for you. You really think that Christ died for everybody's sins but yours. Do you think Christ died for only the small stuff like white lies and not flossing? Then I told him, I'm going to tell you what I, uh, uh, people often ask me why I talk so much about sin. To be honest with you, it's because I'm such a great sinner. I understand guilt. I don't like guilt, but I faced it and I dealt with it. And God is a great God who loves me even though he knows me in ways you will never know me. That is true of you too. As Christians, we need to go back to the basics of faith. We forget that Jesus hung on a cross dying for desperate people, winos, prostitutes, thieves, and other hopeless sinners. Christ came to people who couldn't make it on their own, and that is the good news of the gospel. He never says how it came out with the man, but he said exactly the right thing to him. God's love for us, in one sense, will never end because in another sense it never began because God is eternal. And he has loved us with an everlasting love, the Bible tells us. He has set his love on us before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, before we were even a twinkle in our Father's eye. He has always loved us. He could not stop loving us. He would have to deny himself to stop loving. And so he's always going to love us. He's always going to welcome us. He is, and his love for us never really began at a point in time. It will never really end. It goes on for eternity. His love for people never began. It will never end. It always has been, and it always will be. And so with that comfort, we can see that Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God today. We thank you that it is powerful and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that you have entered, Lord Jesus, the presence of God for us. And you have sprinkled your atoning blood upon the mercy seat. And now you are our advocate with the Father. And one day you're coming back to get us so that we will be with you forever. We anticipate with joy that return. For us, death does not mean judgment because judgment has already occurred on you. We will not be judged for our sins. Our judgment has already occurred. And so we thank you, Father, that we can rest in Jesus knowing 
that everything we should have received for our sin, for the curses of the covenant, fell on him, while everything he should get for being your son in whom he is well pleased has been placed upon us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now, Father, may we give us those who believe and understand this message. In Jesus' name, amen.